Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the uh, guests that we have today because I think that we're going to be able to learn a lot about many, many different things, especially coming from a female founder. So I guess we, without further ado, Frida Polly, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Alejandro. Very excited to be here. So I have to. I'd like to do a little bit of uh, walk through memory lane here because I see that. One thing that was very interesting to me is like how you jump from one, you know, space, which was kind of like the neuro neuropsychology and neuroscience to like really building your own company. So let's do a little bit of walk through memory lane because you got your college degree from Dartmouth. And mm-hmm. then after that, you started being a researcher. And, 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 and how was that for you? How, how did that how was that experience? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So my background, like you said, is that I spent 10 years um, at Harvard and MIT as a cognitive neuroscientist and, you know, really enjoyed the science that we were doing, but was not that excited about the fact that it didn't have any real world application. And so got a bit disillusioned with that and transitioned out of academia through an MBA program at Harvard, which you know, many people thought, and myself included, a bit ridiculous because I already had too much education. But uh, it was actually at during my MBA program at Harvard that I saw recruiting firsthand um, because that's what MBA students do for two years. They try to figure out what their next job is going to be. Um, and that's where the proverbial light bulb went off in terms of thinking to myself, wow, recruiting really hasn't changed since I was in college. It's very outdated. There's really you know, you're trying to understand some fundamental cognitive and emotional um, features about people, which we had obviously learned how to do in the lab. You want to predict something using machine learning, which we also knew how to do in the, from the lab. Um, but you want this all to be tech enabled, you know, like all of the other machine learning platforms out there. And I don't think without that experience that I would have, I, that we'd be, that I'd be where I was, I am today. It was very critical to experience that problem firsthand and see it firsthand in order to kind of cross-pollinate from a different field. So how do you define neuropsychology for, especially for those that are listening? Neuroscience and neuropsychology? Yeah, Yeah. it's a study of people that relies more on behavior than it does self-report. So if you think about, um, you know, psychology in general, psychology tends to 
you know, you ask a few questions, Alejandro, you know, what kind of person do you think you are? You know, and it really is a questionnaire based and self-report based. What neuropsychology and neuroscience have done is really look at people's behavior as a, you know, maybe more accurate predictor of who they are internally, and then also try to link it um, to actual sort of biological brain functioning. So, you know, when I was an academic neuroscientist, we would do, you know, magnetic resonance imaging studies of people's brains and try to understand, you know, when someone's memorizing something, what part of their brain is activated. And it's really the non-invasive exploration of someone's brain uh, using all sorts of high-tech machinery. Now, we don't do that anymore, obviously, but you can still... So in the development of the science, when you ask someone to, um, you know, figure out what the neural pathways are of memory, you need to make sure that when they're in the MRI scanner, they're actually performing a memory test because it's, I don't know if you ever had an MRI, Alejandro, but it's nice and dark in there. It's warm. People fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> so unless you actually can make sure that they're doing a memory task, you have no idea what their, what your uh, images are going to be of. So that's why they developed all these essentially computer activities that you can do um, that tie very closely to cognitive and emotional functions like memory, attention, planning, risk, uh, reward, and so on and so forth. So that's what we took to start Pymetrics. We didn't obviously do any of the fancy uh, brain, Im brain imaging stuff because that's not necessary. It's really just sort of more the behavioral, uh, you know, neuroscience piece that we use. So it's these you know, computer activities that can look at lots of different cognitive and emotional um, abilities in people, and that and that's kind of the core data that we collect. And 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 one of the things that I saw here, like taking a look at at your professional career, you actually did like you were like as as we were discussing, like a researcher, and you know, got yep. your PhD and involved with all these schools. But <laughs> then all of a sudden, yeah, you get your MBA. Right. And I think that perhaps the MBA sparked, I mean, you had, you were incubating this thought or this idea on how recruiting was done mm -hmm. uh, for some time, because I think that ideas, you know, nonetheless, they take time to incubate. Absolutely. But what, what happened uh, to you, Frida? I mean, something happened during the MBA. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like I said, I, you know, it wasn't just what was happening to me. It was what I was seeing all around. So if you go to an MBA program, Typically, what you're seeing is it's a two-year recruiting cycle for people <clears throat> because most people are coming in with, you know, a career, but oftentimes either they want to change careers entirely or they want to find a new firm to go work for. So you get on campus and you're just inundated by company presentations, recruiters, and so on and so forth. And what I was struck by was that it really hadn't changed since I was in college. And I was like, wow, this is like 10 years ago and nothing's nothing's improved. Um, and then not only that, but I was experiencing, you know, the pain of career switching myself because I was, you know, I had this 50-page long uh, resume that, you know, had to be condensed into one page. And I'm like, how can the resume even be accurate if a 50-page document can describe me just as well as a one-page document? Um, and not only that, but I had sort of, you know, th thought of myself as wanting to go into entrepreneurship, but didn't necessarily look the part in the sense that, you know, I was in my mid thirties at the time I was a single parent, I was a woman, like I didn't look like the 24 year old hacker in a hoodie. So I think that, you know, experiencing the pain of like, I think I want to do this, but none of these sort of external resume, like what people expect from an entrepreneur, um, fit my mold. And then also just seeing it play out over and over again with, you know, people that I knew where they either didn't know what they wanted to do, or they thought they knew what they wanted to do, spent all this time 
you know, getting that internship and then after two days hating it and just realizing that there was really no way to get good data and use machine learning to help people understand um, what their best you know, career choices were. And same for companies. There was very little data-driven uh, recruiting going on. So, so then walk us through the um, through through that. You know, okay. So you knew that this that this that this problem was there, and yep. you were starting to incubate this solution. I think that doing the MBA at Harvard was starting to shape you as well as a, as a business leader, as 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 really being right there, ready to, to 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 take the leap of faith. But but walk us through that moment, through that day that you told yourself, "I'm going to pull the trigger and I'm going to make this thing." Happen. <laughs> sure. Um, it was actually kind of a funny day because I think even then the idea for the company hadn't fully f formed in my mind, but I was talking to my then co-founder at the time and we were actually sitting in like a coffee shop in New York. Um, and because I was interning at a startup there for the summer and I just remember, you know, I was like, you know, I have this great idea and she's like, well, what is it? And I'm like, well, we're going to use neuroscience somehow. And she's like, well, what are we going to do with it? And I'm like, I don't know, but we're going to solve this, you know, job problem that I see in front of me. And she's like, well, how are we going to do that? And I was like, I don't know, but it's going to be great. You know? And it was like, it really was this like flash in my brain more than it was like, I, you know, pulled out some kind of PowerPoint presentation with a fully formed business plan. I just had this inspiration that like, you know, we had some great data. We, we could get data from people. We could um, use data science. We could predict outcomes. I just had this flash of like, wow, this is definitely going to, this is going to be big. Um, and then, you know, that was that summer and we built out an early MVP during that year um, and, you know, kind of crystallized what the actual platform was going to look like. And we kind of had at that point sort of these incremental milestones, which was like, you know, okay, if we can get five companies, because, you know, again, companies come to HBS all the time. And so we would have the opportunity to sit down with, you know, uh, executives and say, here's what we built. Do you think it's interesting? And so we had these like sequential milestones, like if we can get five companies to take a demo and think it's interesting, then that's one milestone. And I remember the milestone for taking the plunge because we bootstrapped for the first year. I was like, okay, well, if we can get a company to pay us a certain amount of money, for this technology, um, we're going to move to New York and found the company. And the, in May of that year, when we were graduating, we had a you know six-figure uh, you know contract that we signed with a with the company, um, and that was our you know friends and family or our seed round or whatever you want to call it. Um, and we lived off of that for a year. So that was kind of like the impetus. And you know, part of it for me was <clears throat> realizing that there is no better time. Well, first of all you know, starting a company is kind of like having a baby. Like there's no good time, <laughs> you know, you, you kind of got to fit it in there somehow. Um, but there's no exit but, and you only break even when they <laughs> let you sleep at night. Yeah, I know. There, there's some parts of the analogy that don't work out that well, but my point <laughs> is like, it's, it could, it could always be a good time and it could always be a bad time. You just had to, you kind of have to just do it. That's sort of my like advice that I give to anybody. It's like, you're, you're never going to have even close to X amount of certainty that you want to have. And there is no good time. So you just have to take the plunge when you feel passionate and excited enough. And there's nothing else that you would ever think about doing. Like that's when, you know, like a good time is. And so we had set up all these things saying, okay, if we do this, we do this, we, we can do this, then we'll do it. And though we had hit most of them, but at the same time, it was really just a leap of faith of, okay, we've you know gotten these very early proof points, um, and now's as good a time as any. And 
one of the stories I, you know, like to tell is that my, you know, my dad is, you know, he's a kind of old fashioned, he's Italian. Um, you know, he had a steady career in consulting and then finance. And he thought, you know, his, uh, you know, daughter was finally going to get, you know, a real job because, you know, science is, (laughs) I mean, it's not like, I mean, I'm joking, science is a real job, but, you know, he thought, okay, finally, she's going to go to Harvard and get her MBA and she's going to have a traditional job. And then I told him, oh, you know, papa, I'm going to start a company. (laughs) Right. And he was like, my Frida, like, my <laughs> like, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. He was so disappointed. He was just like, oh, what is my daughter doing now? Right. He's very proud. But the point is that I think it really just takes a strong belief and a passion. It really is about passion and just feeling like all of these other opportunities that were getting thrown my way just seems so boring in comparison. And I was like, there's never going to be a good time. I might as well do it now. If I fail, I I then just thought to myself, like, you know, being an entrepreneur and failing in the U.S. is actually still a mark of pride. Like, even if you start a company and it doesn't work out, nobody, at least in the U.S., is ever going to think of you as a failure. They're going to be like, wow, you tried this. This is so great. Like, it's inspiring, you know. So I just felt like the downside was low. And again, we had secured this, you know, small... (laughs) Um, you know, bootstrapping amount of money. So, you know, I just figured the time was, the time was now. And look, I, I I can't relate to that. I mean, I'm originally from Spain and, and in Spain is the same mentality of, Hey, if you fall, you know, they point at you and, and you know, that's it. While here in the U S they encourage you to do it again. And and they actually value the lessons learned from failure. Absolutely. So um, so I, I, I get that. And, and, and let me ask you this, what, what ended up being the business model then? Yeah, so the business model is fairly straightforward. It's a SaaS platform that we sell to enterprise clients. Um, So the idea is basically that it's a tool that uh, helps both companies and actually the job seekers. So the tool um, helps the companies because it helps them understand of all the people that are applying to them, who are out of that big, big pool, which ones should they, which ones are best suited and for which job. Um, and conversely on the job seeker side, it's the same thing. It will, you know, a person applies, they go through biometrics and not only do they get assessed for the job that they apply to, but they actually get assessed for any job that the company has, um, modeled using our platform. So that was the other thing I wanted to fix at HBS is that I saw my friends, you know, going through the same exact, extremely tedious process over and over again. But it was like, apply, get rejected, apply, get rejected. And eventually you would find your right role, but it was just extremely inefficient. And I was like, why is this happening? Why isn't it if you get rejected from this role, you can't actually be rematched over here? And so that's what we do with Pymetrics is if you apply and you're not a good fit for the role you applied for, we'll actually rematch you to other roles so that you could be a better fit for either at the company um, or even outside amongst our partner companies. So really it's a cool. fast platform that, you know, you pay a subscription for and it's volume based. Um, so the cost is entirely on the company side. There's no cost, obviously, for the person applying. But I think that they also get a lot of value out of it. Really cool. Really cool. And one of the things that I think I I read somewhere um, so that so that listeners don't get mad that I'm I'm talking about age or or anything. <laughs> but I think that the, the situation in which one is, I think that. It, it's really important from a facts perspective. And I think I read that 
At the time of starting the business, yep. you were 30 years old, 38 years yep, old, was, and also yep. a single mother. So was, what, yep. was, what was going through your mind during this period of time? <laughs> what was going through my mind or my dad's mind? My dad's mind was like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about yours? <laughs> there was some of that. There was some of that, maybe in English. Frida, what are you doing? Um, so... Look, I'm not going to lie to you. I think there was a fair amount of self-doubt that I had to grapple with because, again, I wasn't an engineer. I wasn't a data scientist. That was my co-founder. Um, I was much more kind of the neuroscientist, product person, you know, business person, which, of course, is very important. But I had no track record actually starting any companies. Um, and, you know, so it was a combination of like, oh, my gosh, am I really going to do this? Is this going to work out? <clears throat> but also back to the point that I was making to you earlier, you know, is I had a domain expertise. I could have easily gone back into science. I could have easily taken a job in industry and biotech and consulting. And it just, those options just seem so boring to me that I couldn't imagine doing that. And yet there was this extremely intimidating yet extremely fascinating thing that I wanted to do. Um, and so I, I kind of just went for it and it was a complete leap of faith. Um, I've kind of learned about myself that I think if I'm not challenged in a sort of very significant way, I tend not to do my best work. Um, and so it was a very, like, it was a big contrast in fear of, is this going to, am I going to be able to make this a career um, combined with this huge amount of excitement? And then, you know, like, again, I was, you know, we, we had secured this small amount of money. I had a, you know, some savings that I could rely on. So I wasn't, you know, I don't know, like I mean, you hear these stories of people like having, you know, mortgaging their house. I mean, I wasn't quite at that stage, but still, you know, I was a single parent. I was supporting myself and, you know, my daughter at the time. And um, so it wasn't like I had nary a care in the world. So, you know, there was definitely some tension there, but, um, but I always back to the point of like, I just felt like even if I in quotes fail, um, I, I think I'm very, I, I just figured out I'm pretty hireable. I can do something else and why not give it a shot? So then, so then what kind of, um, support network did you build around you? Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, HBS is a massive support network, right? I mean, <clears throat> there are people that start companies that had, don't have prestigious degrees and all the rest of it. And, you know, like, let's not kid ourselves, like having an HBS network, uh, to fall back on is a huge advantage. So, uh, you know, I mean, that's how we found our first VCs. I mean, that's how we got some of our early clients. So really, I don't consider myself as someone who is like disadvantaged in terms of, you know, the support network that I had in any, in any kind of, in any kind of way. Um, so there was obviously the business network that I had formed there. There was the scientific network that I had from my 10 years in academia. Um, you know, despite being a single parent, you know, my, my, my daughter's uh, dad was, you know, very helpful, um, in every way that he could be. So like, I think that, you know, and then obviously friends, family and all the rest of it. So I think it's, you know, you, as an entrepreneur, you hear all sorts of crazy stories. I mean, like, so the first year of Pymetrics, I lived with my co-founder at the time and my daughter, and, you know, I call it two women in an algorithm phase of Pymetrics because it was <laughs> very tight living quarters. <laughs> and, you know, you couldn't go home from work. It was like, oh, I just left work and now I'm back at work because <laughs> my co-founder, you know, so right. it's not to say that it wasn't without a lot of stress and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, and, and to add a, you know, my daughter was seven at the seven at the time to add a, you know, seven-year-old to the mix, I think is, uh, is not, not easy, but 
you know, there, there are plenty of people that, you know, you hear the same stories. I had to live with my wife and my co-founder. Like I, you know, was living out of my car. I mean, I don't know. There's just all sorts of crazy stuff that people do when they're yeah. starting a company. So, so I think any, any tips there, Frida, especially for the ones that are listening that are, you know, perhaps in a similar situation <laughs> on how you were able to, let's say, balance business and, and let's say Family. time that you could spend with, with your daughter. Yeah. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. so this is just general thoughts. I believe that for myself, in any case, becoming a parent made me more efficient um, in the sense that I think, you know, a lot of the time I used to spend spinning my wheels and being anxious or whatever about other stuff just kind of had to go by the wayside. I've definitely heard that from other people, um, especially women who have become parents, is that they just become more efficient with their time. And I think, quite frankly, they always tell you that as an entrepreneur, focus and time are kind of the two things that are in the shortest supply. So I actually think it was a good, um, a good push for me. Um, and the other advantage to being an entrepreneur, I think, is that you get have, you know, a lot of flexibility in your schedule. So, you know, if I needed to, I mean, again, I, I kind of, you know, the company has always had this, this, you know, work ethic that, you know, you don't have to have a lot of face time. So long as you're getting your work done, you can don't have to be there until two in the morning. Right. So that's very different than some of the other founder stories where people are, you know, there's this ethos of like, oh, we all got to be in the office and drinking Red Bull or whatever till wee hours in the morning. So it definitely is different from that perspective. But I think the the I, philosophy has always been like, hey, so long as you're efficient, you get your work done, you get results. It doesn't really matter where you're doing it from or, or how you're doing it. And I think that that's, you know, been helpful, I think also in, you know, just creating an environment, a work environment that is conducive to many people being successful, not just people that have children, but people that, you know, might need to work remotely for certain reasons, or, you know, even those, uh, those terrible millennials we all hear about, um, you know, and how much they, you know, value flexibility and whatnot. I think it's, it's, you know, the core idea of, of being productive and yet having flexible, conditions, I think, is is just been really helpful for a lot of people um, at the company. And, and I would encourage anyone that's starting a company to see, okay, there's always good, there's always pluses and minuses to my situation. Obviously, if I hadn't had a kid, I would have been able to work, you know, more hours, but maybe those hours wouldn't have been as productive. So there's all, there are always pros and cons. Got it. And now talking about the business, I see that, I mean, obviously, you guys have major clients. We're talking about Unilever, Accenture, yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah. But what were uh, some of the, let's say, early days and, and some of the challenges? Because, I mean, oh now you're at a point There's where you so can many. bring those guys in. But, yeah. but kind of like walk us through those challenges. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'll never forget, like, the first time we walked into it was a you know major financial services uh, company. And I'll never forget just, you know, sort of talking to them about the idea. And, you know, they kind of they did the verbal equivalent of patting me on the head and saying, Oh, that's so sweet. Um, so nice that you thought of this idea. Like, uh, you know, it was just very, it wasn't patronizing, but it was just sort of this like clear that in their mind, this was, um, you know, just kind of a, a silly idea to some extent. Um, so I think, look, there were a lot of challenges it, balanced by the fact that from a very early point, there was a lot of interest in what we were doing. So it was this, it was this interesting dichotomy of um, those types of experiences where people were patting you on the head saying, you know, this sounds ridiculous to other people just being like, wow, if this actually works, this is game changing. Um, 
So that was good because it just showed there was interest in the market. And obviously it's a huge market because, you know, all companies hire people. Um, but I think the challenges were that it's, you know, very hard to build a data and AI company. It takes a lot of work. Um, it's not, I mean, not to say that any company isn't work, but it's not like you can just kind of stand it up overnight. There was a lot of investment that we had to do in terms of gathering data, building out the algorithms, you know, making the algorithms much more, um, you know, basically making it into software and so on. So it was a tremendous amount of challenge. I mean, we, you know, a lot of doors knocked on, a lot of people saying thanks, but no thanks, or this seems absurd, or I have no idea what you're talking about. And it's so funny because now we're in this market where people copy our stuff. But, you know, if you thought back five years ago, um, you know, there were lots of people who just thought this was, you know, kind of a crazy idea. So I think it's not uncommon to, to kind of have those experiences early on. And I imagine that probably one of the biggest challenges was with fundraising. So how, how much capital yeah. have you guys raised to date? Yeah, so we've raised uh, approximately 57 million um, in venture funding, you know, which is a lot. And uh, we're that's both, a, you know, very exciting. And then also you got to use it wisely. Um, you know, we were, so I think it's a combination of things. I wouldn't say we were lucky, but in some ways I think we were lucky. So there were lots of VCs that we pitched that really just thought this was nuts, right? Because on the one hand, you're pitching the kind of HR crowd that is like neuroscience. How does that even fit into the picture, right? And they just kind of wrote that off completely. And then on the other hand, you're pitching, you know, the people that have experience in life sciences and they're like, life science for HR? Like, they, so nobody got it, right? Like everybody <laughs> was just kind of like, but, you know, bashing their heads against the wall. Um, and then interestingly enough, one of the case studies that we had done at HBS was a, was Coastal Ventures. Um, and Samir Khal, who's a you know partner there, had come and presented. And I just had the back of my mind, like, oh, they're an interesting fund. They do a lot of science investing. So when I was ready, when we were ready to raise our seed round, which was in late 2013, I asked my professor at HBS or my former professor, I was like, hey, you know, can you give me the address of email address of that guy who came and presented? <laughs> and this this professor of mine <laughs> who was like really liked me a ton, but thought of Kosla as, you know, clean tech and batteries. He looked at me and in his southern drawl, he's like, Oh, Frida, they don't invest in companies like yours. And I was like, okay, you know, just give me the email address. Like he can reject <laughs> me on his own. I don't need you to play like matchmaker here. Right. Yeah. And so interestingly, I emailed Smear and, um, you know, basically the next day got a response. And again, this is back to where the HBS network was really invaluable. And they just kind of saw it kind of immediately because they do have a lot of portfolio companies that take kind of science that isn't designed for the purpose that it's getting used for. And that's kind of, you know, one of the things they like to invest in. But it just took a lot of, you know, looking at many, many different options before that one became the obvious one. So, and then obviously, like, once you've raised some money, then, you know, obviously easier to raise uh, further money. I think the Series A was also tough because, again, as a data and algorithm company, like our revenue was pretty min de minimus at that point. I don't think we had any, it was early 2016 when we raised it and we had like zero revenue in 2015. Um, and we had to explain like, Hey, it takes a long time to like build algorithms that actually work. And, you know, we're not a toothbrush company. We're not going to have, you know, we're not a consumer goods company. So, um, so I think at every point there have been different challenges and, and honestly, fundraising is hard. I mean, I think most people you talk to, I, I mean, you, you, you know, have, you know, since you're an entrepreneur as well, like, I, I mean, of course there's always the stories where 
you hear of people just pouring money into a company, but, um, you know, I'll never forget seeing, um, you know, uh, Kettering Lake talk about Stitch Fix and they had just the hardest, I mean, they're just such a challenge raising money and, you know, look at them, they've been this huge success. So I just don't think that success at raising money is necessarily an, a proxy for how successful your company is going to be. I mean, obviously it's a necessary, uh, a necessary thing, but I don't think that, oh, just because I raise money easily means my companies are going to be successful or vice versa, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And and you guys got like really good investors. I mean, I see yeah. you were talking about Cosla Ventures, yep. General Atlantic, mm-hmm. Salesforce Ventures, Workday Ventures. I mean, really, yep. really great and also really a strategic guys. Now, talking to 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 the fact of, of you know, let's let's I just want to drop some facts and, and just sure. so you know, and, and then also for the listeners, I actually have three daughters myself. And nice. so I I'm do like, too. yes, I'm like, I know what's my place in the house. No, but I'm I'm really <laughs> excited about the fact that things are changing because yep. I think that the VC and startup world, it has been to a certain degree a boys club. And I'm yep. really excited because yep. this is changing and I really want my my girls to live in a different environment. Yep. So, you know, some of the some of the facts that I that I saw was something crazy like sixty billion in funding uh, for male co-founded companies yep. versus one point yep. five billion yep. in funding for female the co-founded companies. And then there was another study from Carta that shared that Women make up 33% of the combined founder and employee workforce, but yep. only hold 9, 9% of yep. the equity value, while yeah, the other no. 91% belongs to men. Why, why do you think this is the case? Yeah, well, look, I mean, look, Alejandro, there, there have been studies done by um, academics uh, that basically show that they're it, with the exact same pitch, a woman is half as likely as a man to raise capital. So basically they did the study and they basically had women and men pitch the exact same idea to a group of investors and men were funded at two times the rate that, uh, that women were. So there's no doubt that in, and then there was another, you know, fantastic study that they did. Uh, I thought it was super interesting where they basically looked at the questions that VCs ask men and women um, and essentially most of the questions that women are asked are very much like, um, you know, they had this term for it, but it was basically like preventing the downturn, the downside, like, what are you going to do to mitigate this problem or blah, blah, blah. Whereas for men, they were like, uh, you know, what's your dream for this company? So, you know, there's been a lot of studies just showing that, you know, unconscious bias is a, is a big piece of it. And, yeah. Um, and again, it's great that they've done the studies because I think like anecdotally, I could tell you as a woman, some of the experiences I've had, unfortunately it's an anecdote. So, you, you know, as with racism, you know, it's really always hard to pinpoint sexism because it's, you know, it's hard to prove that that's what it was, but you know, the last series of funding that we did, I can give you a perfect example that in my mind, if it wasn't sexism, I don't know what it was. It was this, uh, relatively well-known fund in the Valley. And, you know, we'd gone pretty far. We'd met with a bunch of their partners and then we got this email, which was just classic. It was like, you're amazing. The company is amazing. The business model is fantastic. We've never seen such amazing financials. Blah, blah. There's just something that makes us not believe in the market opportunity or something like that. And I was like, oh, could that something be sexism? I mean, you know, and again, I can't prove that. Maybe it was something completely different, but I definitely think that that's where these studies come in, where they've done the, you know, contrast and shown that women are are at a, you know, significant disadvantage. And the only thing you can really 
attributed to is is sexism. Um, and again, I don't think it's conscious. I mean, I think women are can be just as biased or sexist against other women. So it's not that, you know, men are bad and women are good or anything like that. It's just that we've all been raised to think certain things about men and women and, you know, and, sure. you know, women are not the pattern recognition people have of women is not that they're going to go on to to form billion dollar companies. So I think that is honestly the biggest challenge. I mean, then people can also say, oh, maybe it's a pipeline problem and all the rest of it. But my strong suspicion is that it's not as much a pipeline problem and that all of this sort of unconscious bias is uh, is really where where it comes in. I think I was, again, protected from some of that because of, and again, this is, there's a lot of research around this, is that if a woman has uh, domain expertise or some sort of, um, you know, something that shows that like the, 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 the way a woman can mitigate bias is to have a track record of, you know, strong success in something. Now, granted, I had never been an entrepreneur, but I had a very good, good track record in being a scientist and I was proposing to build a science-based company. So I think that gave some, you know, investors confidence that like, Hey, this person can do this. Right. So that was, I think where I got some of that mitigated. But again, I don't think that I'm shielded from a lot of the bias that that's out there, quite frankly, you know? No, no, I, I hear you completely. And, you know, there's actually a lot of studies that have proven that companies that have a a female executive at the top are, they tend to perform much better than those that don't. So, uh, I think that, you know, I'm very glad that things are changing. And, and you know, one thing that, uh, that and, and I don't know if, uh, if you have experienced anything about this, but, you know, talking about the fundraising itself with the Me Too movement, there were like a bunch of uh, VCs that, you know, were really put on the spotlight. Yeah. So yeah. did you ex- experience like any type of inappropriate interaction? No, you saw that no. no, I really didn't, you know, and <laughs> I mean, thankfully, obviously, right. Uh, you know, and I think, look, I think, New York is actually, I mean, we both live in New York. New York's actually a better climate for women. They've done, they've looked at this as well. There are a lot more women founders. They've raised more capital. Um, you know, uh, I think, you know, Boston's also not as bad. I think the Valley, for whatever reason, is is probably the worst and, and has more of that culture, right? Um, so I never experienced that. I feel very fortunate. And I think all of our VCs have been super professional and in every way. Um, so luckily it didn't get to that extreme. I think that's a whole nother piece of the, you know, funding challenge that women face. I I think, you know, we probably experienced as two women co-founders, just, you know, plain old sexism, but not sexual harassment. (laughs) Yeah. So I I get for the, for the female founders that are, that are listening, what, what kind of, uh, what would you say are like the top, let's say three tips to keep in mind going out and raising? You know, that's always hard because I think, um, I mean, I think you just have to be prepared for it to happen and not to have it let you, I mean, could surprise you, but it shouldn't shock you. Right. I mean, I'll give you another example. Like this was a kind of a funny one where I had done a call with, um, with no, actually I'd done an in-person meeting with another, uh, fund in the Valley. And then I got feedback from, another person that worked at that fund that I had come across as lacking in self-confidence. And when I told the story to anyone who knew me, they were just like (laughs) kind of blown away. They're like, what? Like, do they know you? Like, what is, you know, but again, I hadn't projected whatever male version of, you know, uh, behavior passes off as confidence, whatever that is. Right. So I think you just have to just take it with a grain of salt and try not to let it get you down because it's just going to happen. And I think if you 
just let it really get you down, it's going to demotivate you. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think the other thing is really you, I mean, pick your VCs or who you're pitching somewhat carefully, because I think if they have a bad reputation or you've had, you know, you know, people that have had a bad experience, like don't go there. Like why, you know, it's like, why would you, why would you knowingly just, just don't, I mean, there are enough, there's enough money out there now that I, I really don't think you're in a position where you have to go pitch a fund that has a bad reputation or a partner that has a bad reputation or, you know, whatever. Right. And then quite frankly, I do think that, you know, funds that have shown some sort of commitment, um, to diversity in whatever way that is, they have, you know, um, you know, whether it's, they've really tried hard to, you know, have women partners or in whatever other way you can see some sort of you know, movement in that direction, I think is, is just another sign. So I think it's like anything else in life. Like you have to go in with some sort of knowledge and, you know, try to be smart about it and then realize that no matter how smart you are, you're still gonna, um, you're still gonna encounter it. The other thing is that article I was telling you about where, um, you know, women were likely to get sort of the negative questions and men were, were, got the positive ones. What they found was really interesting is that if you then spun it as a woman and you said, well, you know, I'm not really so worried about the down part of this business. I'm actually really excited about the potential. And you kind of flipped it and you turned it into the positive scenario. It actually mitigated, um, the, the decrease in funding that you were likely to get otherwise as a woman. So I thought that was really fascinating. And I actually used that. I was very aware of that when I was pitching VCs of like how they would sort of go to the negative and I would always try to spin it around and say, Hey, you're thinking about this wrong. You're not thinking about the huge upside and so on. So I do think that as we learn more about how to mitigate some of this stuff, um, you know, it, it, you can get some really useful, you know, advice basically. Right. And I mean, yourself with all the neuropsychology background that you had, <laughs> oh my God, eh? <laughs> you had an advantage. Come on. So, maybe, uh, so maybe, I mean, I'm not sure about that, but, um, you know, but yeah, yeah, I think, look, I think there's a lot of research out there. And so just do your homework, I guess. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So, so, so how big for the people that are listening to get a sense, how big is the, the operation of Pymetrics today? Yeah. So we're 120 people now um, spread across, uh, several different geographies. So most people are in the U S with the largest, you know, with the headquarters being in New York. And then we have, um, offices in London and also in Asia. So. Got it. So, so let's say in a world where the vision of Pymetrics has been fully realized, yeah. what, what does that world look like? Oh my gosh. If ev I always say if everyone in the world was forced to use Pymetrics in their hiring, um, the hiring would be much more predictive and much more fair. I mean, literally, if like there was a law tomorrow or if like somebody waved the magic wand and all hiring was done through Pymetrics, it would absolutely have that outcome. Um, and so really what the vision is, is to be the most ubiquitous uh, platform for matching people to roles. And that can be externally where you're doing, you know, recruiting or it can be internally, right? I mean, think of us as kind of like the Harry Potter sorting hat, um, for talent where we're going to match you to your right opportunity. Um, no matter what your background is, no matter what you look like, no matter what your demographics are, we're going to understand something fundamental about you and fundamental about the job and make that match in the most accurate and fair way possible. And that's really the vision. It has been the vision since the beginning. hasn't really changed. We haven't done a pivots or, you know, anything like that. Um, and I think that, you know, again, if, if we could wave a magic wand and everybody used um, better data. If everyone used Pymetrics in hiring. We would have, you know, people staying longer, people being happier in their jobs, a more diverse um, workforce. And we've seen this time and time and time again. And this is why people 
you know, companies like the ones you mentioned earlier buy our product is because they too want to see a future where, um, you know, not only are people better suited for their jobs, but actually we see a lot more diversity in the workforce. And, and, you know, to me, that's super exciting because, you know, like you, I have, I have two daughters, I have one on the way, um, five weeks away actually. And, you know, and like, I think it's an exciting time. It's not just about gender diversity. We need to talk about, you know, underrepresented minorities. We need to talk about socioeconomic diversity. That's just, you know, I think we're just, the world is changing. We need to evolve into a, a place and time where, everybody is considered equally regardless of their background, their pedigree, what they look like, what they did before. You know, it's just, it's, we're not in a, I personally think we're not in a place anymore where we can afford that luxury. You know what I mean? Because if you look at all the challenges that are happening in the world today, whether they're political or whatever, a lot of them are centered around, you know, economic inequality, um, lack of opportunity for certain large groups of the population. Um, And, and then you just talk about sort of basic challenges like, you know, Companies can't find workers with the skills that they need because the workforce is evolving so quickly that, you know, the jobs of today don't match the jobs of even five years ago. So all of that requires that we use better data and better, uh, you know, machine learning to to do that matching. We just need to evolve into a place that we're, that our hiring is a lot more like Netflix than it is like Blockbuster, you know. Got it. Got it. No, it makes 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 sense. And and obviously now, I mean, you guys have built this uh, what 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 seems to be a rocket ship and and fantastic success. But I'm sure that you know you you agree with me that at the end of the day, the um, there's not such thing as a straight line, and the highs are really high and the lows are really low. So I guess like looking back, like on on those dark periods, was there a moment where you thought that perhaps there will be no tomorrow and and how did you handle that situation you mean this morning over breakfast <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm not even joking and i think it's partly because i'm pregnant but like you know this morning i was like just crying i mean like i'll be honest i was just crying my husband's like what's, what's wrong and i'm like I, I just don't think i can do this like so i mean you just i mean i'm just being honest like you know maybe i shouldn't be admitting to these uh you know emotional highs and lows but um, you know, I think it just, and then there's, was there anything in particular that had like put me in that? No, it's just, you know, there's always going to be, you know, the customer that the renewal isn't what you thought it was going to be. And the employee who, um, may leave because of personal reasons. And, you know, it's just, it's the accumulation of all of those things. And then of course there's like, you know, the huge lows, like, oh my gosh, are we going to be able to raise our next round or whatever? But, um, you know, there, I, I don't think that in, the world of entrepreneurship. And again, you know, Alejandro, you have, you know, experience in this as well that, you know, you just have to expect it. I mean, you, you know, and I think you have to have like, so for what I've found about myself is that, um, I am fortunate. I feel like that I bounce back from those things quickly. Right. And that, that type of an environment to some extent stimulates me because again, it's back to the idea that like a regular job I find overly boring. Um, and I'll never forget. But, I actually but, talked- How do you do that? They free that. I mean, you say you, I, ba- I bounce back, but mm-hmm. bouncing back is, is key. I mean, is there yeah. like a, a specific exercise or, or way or lenses <laughs> in which you look at things? Because I, I got, I mean, yeah. you have like this background as well. I mean, you're trained in really yeah. understanding the brain. So, I mean, yeah. it's saying, how do you do it? I don't know. I would ask you the same question. How do you do it? I mean, I think people do it differently, right? I mean, I think some people, you know, everyone has their technique, I think, right? And then there's probably some sort of inherent 
aspect of people that make it more versus less. Um, it, I think there is a personality type that probably resonates better with this than, than not, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. you know, for me, I mean, again, being completely, completely honest, like I'm half Latin. Um, I think that, you know, venting, crying, letting my feelings out, stuff like, I don't mean venting, screaming at the office. I just mean, <laughs> you know, like just let, being emotional is actually helpful yeah. to me. And I think if I can kind of let that out, then I feel, oh, I'm like, oh, that was a weight off my chest. And now I can you know, move on. I also think, and this is something I learned very early on, your team is your biggest support network. Like we really value certain cultural values of teamwork, positivity, and all the rest of it. Because I truly think that as a team, you can accomplish exponentially more than you can as a sole person. And yes, I am the face of the company. I'm the founder, but I am nothing, honestly, without my team. Like I truly mean that. Um, and I just think that like having that backing, it's like a safety net. It's like a, you know, something you can fall into where when you're feeling weak, other people will be there to support you. And I've seen this time and time again, where like, whether it's me or someone else is going through a rough time, like I think you can have other people come and say, okay, how can I help you? What can I do to take the burden off? You know, blah, blah, blah. Like that's how you can create a resilient environment. It's not just about individuals. It's about people working collectively to support one another towards a shared goal. I mean, I think everyone really is very passionate about the mission that we're bringing to the market, which is, you know, accurate and fair hiring. Um, and, you know, if you're passionate about that and you work collectively to, to achieve that, I think it's it's a very strong combination. Got it. So basically, there's there's one question that I always ask the guests that that come to the to the show, and that is, uh, I mean, you you've you've now been at it for for quite a bit and experienced quite a lot. So if you could go back to the past, and I know this is impossible, but if you could have that possibility <laughs> of being able to have a chat with your younger self and give yourself one piece of advice yep. before launching a business, let's say in this case, Pymetrics, what would that be and why? I think that the, what I would tell my earlier self is really, don't be afraid. You know, I know that sounds absurd because there's so many things to be afraid of, but like, I think I spent so much of my twenties and like wrapped up in a ball of anxiety over God only knows what. And, um, it's just like, don't be afraid. And, and, you know, like, ch like be bold and challenge yourself because I think, especially as a woman, I hate to say this. I think that's not necessarily the message that we're always given. Um, so just be, be bold and don't be afraid and, you know, tr shoot for the moon. That That's what I would tell my younger self. I love it. I love it. And if you don't land, you at least land on the stars. Yeah, so exactly. Uh, there's no, bad. there's no, there's no harm in failing. You know, there's no, so there's no such thing as failing, honestly, I think to some extent. So. I love it. And look, at the end of the day, there's not such thing as failing. It's either you succeed or you learn. So you just got to keep it moving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Love it. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi, Frida? Yeah, sure. So people can either, you know, shoot me a tweet at, at Frida Pauly, um, uh, or, you know, find me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email. It's just Frida, F-R-I-D-A, at Pymetrics, P-Y-M-E-T-I-R-C-S.com. So any any which way, you'll, you'll reach me. Amazing, Frida. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Yeah, thank you, Alejandro. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.